0: So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.
1: Hello, it's the Ruler podcast and I'm Ian Parkinson. It's October And in the UK, at least, that means it's hill climb season. A few short weeks when strange, skinny men, and not a few skinny women, appear as if from nowhere to ride up short, horribly steep hills in the countryside, urged on by fanatical crowds. It's a very British phenomenon, and not for everyone, especially not for me. I rode the legendary Catford hill climb a few years ago, and nothing on earth would convince me to do it again. When I finally did reach the finish line, my family genuinely thought I was going to die. We'll be hearing from a 100 Climbs author Simon Warren in just a minute, and later we'll be finding out exactly what a performance lifestyle advisor does with the new British Cycling Academy recruits. And we'll also be hearing from the man who invented two of the most famous saddles in cycling history. First, two men who are definitely built for going uphill. Ruler executive editor Ian Cleverley and Simon Warren, who wrote 100 Greatest Cycling Climbs, followed that up with a book on his favourite Belgian bergs and has now released a box set of regional guides to the best climbs in Britain. There
2: aren't all 100 climbs a book, the regional books. In total, there's 545 climbs, which is still a lot of hills. Uh, across britain the way i geographically brought, uh, brought the country up. if you go to the northeast th- there aren't that many because it's, it's a reasonably small area a lot of it's sort of wilderness almost so that book only has 15 but most of them have 75 in a couple of them have 60 um which gives you a total of 545
3: and research wise is do you sit there pouring over a map or do i mean it's probably a combination i was just wondering how how many suggestions come into you from you know, fans of the 100 Climbs concert?
2: Yeah, ever since I published the first one, um, I started asking people, you know, and people would send in, why is it this in here? Why is it this in here? And in the advent of Twitter, you know, anyone can contact you. So anyone said that, I'd, you know, the little screen grab puts in my folder of suggestions and I'd build up a huge list because in the, and if enough people should start shouting about a climb, it has to go in. And then I'll cross reference that with maps and look at Strava, see where people are riding. Um, obviously, there'll be a few. Hills which I just hadn't discovered, which are really, really hidden. I'd see if people are going there. What's this all about? And then you'll see something about it, and yeah, it, 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 you always find something new. I often, you know, when someone suggests something, I start sweating. Oh, I've missed it, and then I realise I haven't missed it, and it's like, phew. Um, but then, if I have missed it, then there's the great adventure of going and finding it, and then maybe there'll be another book. Are
3: there any more to be done? in mainland Britain that you think you haven't quite covered off yet?
2: I don't think so I mean there must be something out there I've missed and there are places where there are great climbs but I've already included great climbs, you take Matlock in Derbyshire for example Um, there's Rybert and Bank, famous hill climb courses but there's five, six seven roads rising out of Matlock which are all vicious so you you could include all of those in the book but it's it actually became almost harder the further I went down to actually what to include and what not to include. Because the first book almost, they picked themselves because they're the really famous ones. But then you may have been, end up in a town and there's four hills, which are equally tough and equally as um, picturesque. Whatever. And you have to pick one, leave the other three out. And then hopefully people will go and discover those on their own.
3: You mentioned hill climbs as a, as a, a kind of an event. Uh, a standalone event. Uh, we are in the middle of the hill climb season now. Now I'm wondering if, if uh, listeners from abroad might not be familiar with what the hill climb concept is because it's, it's I, I don't know if it's peculiarly British, but it is overwhelmingly British,
2: isn't it? I think so. I, I was talking to a guy from California the other day and they have hill climbs, but they're, they're like, you know, 10 kilometres long. The British hill climb is typically between half a mile and two miles and if the season is compact it comes at the end of the year and it's mostly I think there are time trialists but a lot of road racers will do it and you are sort of focusing all your training to a point like sharpening a pencil normal big miles everything comes there's not much light in the evening so you can you know you don't need as much time to train and then it's all about getting out this huge effort over a short distance all the big guys, the sprinters, they'll have packed up, their bikes will be in the, in the shed for, 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 for winter, the winter bikes will be out but the, the really skinny racers they'll, you know, they'll take their big chain ring off, they'll take their bottle cages off, they'll strip the weight down on their bike and they'll focus on these really small efforts, up really cheap, steep hills and then again, all the other people who have stopped racing um, they'll all come out and watch because it makes a great spectator event
3: I've done most sort of uh, disciplines of cycling over my many years of Racing and pootling around. Um, I thought the individual pursuit was the most painful thing you could do on a bike until I did a hill climb without any preparation. I mean, it it, it is savagely painful, isn't it?
2: It is horrible because, saying the pursuit, you could maybe. Back off a tiny bit, but when you go uphill, there's nowhere to back off. You know, gravity's pulling you down, and your will is forcing you forwards. And the sort of contrast of those forces—it's incredibly painful. You enter what is you know commonly known as the pain cave. You start to lose feeling in your fingers, and your eyes get blurred because the body's taking all the blood it needs and putting it where it's been wanted the most—in your legs and your heart—and it's you really have to have a sort of a screw loose to push yourself that deep and the really good hill climbers will go so deep that they'll be lying in, the, in a heap on the floor I've never been able to go that deep I have a, something in my head that says just back off Simon this is you know the, I, I think it's a survival instinct so the, all the alarms start ringing don't do that don't do that but I still go back every year and, and, and push myself as hard as I can I sort of have to now because I've made it right for my own back Again, they are great to ride uh, because you get a crowd, you get an atmosphere, it's over, you've done a little bit of racing, good good uh, release of endorphins, and, yeah, roll on the next one. And then you lie on the
3: verge for 10 minutes clutching your chest. Yeah, basically, Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds really appealing. Now, when I was a lad, everybody rode fixed on a hill climb. That seems to have
2: kind of gone out of fashion somewhat. And I think it's mainly because... I mean the fixed gear idea was to save weight. Everyone had a steel bike and you know, you you take all the bits off, you run a fixed gear. A lot of people would run a lot more track probably and then more equipment, but nowadays you can get a road bike weighing, you know, five kilos when really you strip it down for a hill climb. So there's no need to build a fixed-wheel bike. There's still a few people out there and their bikes still gather a lot of interest because they'll weigh nothing, you know, like four half kilos or something. But for the average man in the street, yeah, you can get your road bike down to a decent weight, and you know, with some really good carbon wheels, and yeah, you, there's just no need for the fix, really.
3: Coming back to your books, uh, it's worth listening to the end of the podcast because there is a, a competition to win this uh, lovely box set of Simon's books. Um, but you also have an app. I think we could probably throw an app in with the uh, box set, couldn't we?
2: Yes, so my first book, uh, and now the the second book, Another 100 Climbs, are are both available as an app, which you obviously download to your phone, and that links with Strava, so if you're on Strava, it sucks up all your information and gives you your 100 climb score, and your goal is to ride them all. Using the app, it'll tell you where the climbs are, again, it links with Strava, it links with Bellevue, it'll show you how many times you've ridden them. How, you know, how well you've gone on them it gives you all the facts for each one uh, and all the content from the book so the picture, the, the text and everything and then you know, you see your score building I like to think that people will take them to the, you know, the club room or the pub and then flash their score and say look I've done 38, you've already done 37 I'm beating you so then your friend has to go out and ride another one um, and then when you do ride the moor, i send you a gold badge. It's like Blue Peter. Very, very like Blue Peter. And there are currently 13 members of the 100 Climbs Club with gold badges. You yeah, know, Christmas party, we might need two, three bottles of wine now. So it's growing. And the only way you can get one is to provide me proof of riding the moor a lot rarer than the Blue Peter badge.
1: And that is a club I have no intention of joining. As I record this, the senior recruits to the British Cycling Academy, essentially the big medal hopes for Tokyo, Paris and beyond, are practising their public speaking and preparing to take part in a Bake Off-style competition. It's all part of an induction week, introducing them to the pleasures and pitfalls of what lies ahead as professional bike racers. Ian cleverly went along on day one and spoke to Arabella Ashfield, who's funded by the English Institute of Sport. She's the academy's performance lifestyle advisor. A what now?
4: A performance lifestyle advisor is a practitioner, and what we do is we support athletes through the entirety of their their athletic career. So, my role is to support athletes when they come onto a program, but then also help them through the various transition points of their athletic career through to when they retire from their sport and career and move into the big wide world of, of employment and whatever they choose to go on to in the future. So we will support a lot around looking at future career options. We'll try to support athletes in and around having dual career aspirations, so being able to maintain education or professional development whilst being an athlete, but also make sure that they're supported as a as an individual, as a person, as well as them being an athlete. Uh, when they're on a world-class programme.
3: The riders, have they all come directly from school or have some done further education in the university? Or...
4: The majority, and I think for the case at the moment, all will have come from from school, um, We all of which are really very close to turning 18 or 18 currently, um, so they will have finished their full-time education. It's absolutely paramount for us that they've... They've had their, um, their full-time education and gone through that system so that they do have that uh, basis for life ahead of them. Yes, yeah, so they are coming fresh from being at home, from being at school, into a centralised programme here, so yes.
3: I saw in the, in the, the presentation that you just did to the, to the, the riders there the, a figure, which I've been asked not to quote, <laughs> of, of how much it, it costs to fund yeah. each rider per annum, which mm-hmm. was a pretty hefty sum, Did you yeah. see their eyes kind of widening slightly when they see that?
4: Yeah, and I, it's an interesting one, because I think with riders, these are 18-year-olds that have come straight from home, they're not necessarily going to know what it takes to put a rider on an Olympic podium, and that is a lot of investment through that career. Um, and I think sometimes it can be, wow, that, that is a lot of money, and realising that actually that money is paying for all that support that they are receiving. It's about where all of those support services are coming from, it's about the expertise and coaching, it's about the facilities, but it's also then all the administration that's behind that and the wider... Great Britain cycling team to be able to support that individual from a logistics point of view, from a health point of view, from equipment. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a big figure, and I think them being aware of that is is quite crucial. But yes, I think there's probably a few surprise and, and wide eyes at the amount there that goes into them.
3: There was also in your in your uh, presentation a, a, a horror show of uh, filthy fridges and and <laughs> toilets and showers and. and were they really from riders' houses, or, or have you just plucked those off the internet? Come on!
4: No, they are. They are. They are ones that we have seen in in our uh, senior academy of housing, and we have to work that fine balance between. You know, we're not. They are living away from home from mum and dad, and they have to take responsibility for the environment that they are in, and they are learning. They are young adults, and they have to be given some guidance on that but equally sometimes a horror show is a good way of saying look do you want to live in this this is you have a choice around that and they have to take responsibility for that so yeah it's, it's a genuine um scare show of of what they need to be aware of and the implications that that can have as well so we were talking to them about actually if you are in um you know in in a an unclean environment, what are the implications for their health if you've got a compromised immune system because you're working really hard, then actually that is going to have an impact if they're going to pick up germs easily and they're going to transfer those germs around the other people and their teammates in the room, so in their house. So yeah, it's, it is important to give them that bit of a bit of a scare at the beginning sometimes.
3: Um, you also mentioned meeting Nora, uh, which, which sounded more of a threat than, than, a, than, a, than a treat. You know, tell me about Nora.
4: Nora is one of the, the cleaners that, that works at the National Cycling Centre and she's a fantastic woman but she's also um, probably can scare them quite well probably better than I can um, uh, or any of the other uh, GBC members of staff so uh, GBC team members of staff so I, I just tend to threaten her that, that Nora is, a, is quite a, a short, scary Mancunian that might be able to come and get them and I'll, I'll tell Nora that she, she will delight in knowing that um, but yeah she, she,
3: she, She'd be delighted to be described as a short, scary Thank
4: you. Yeah, I, I think she would. Yeah, she's perfectly happy with that I, I like Nora a lot. She's she's lots of good fun. So where we can we can always bring Nora in as an extra, an extra scare and an extra threat.
1: Arabella Ashfield. Now, if you were asked to name the most famous saddles in cycling history, there's a good chance the Sella Italia Turbo and the Flight would be among them. The Turbo's padded plastic construction and the Flight's trimmed away sides still provide the blueprint for most modern bike seats. I've been to northern Italy to speak to the man who invented them. So I'm at the headquarters of Selle Italia, near the town of Bassano del Grappa in the Veneto region of North Italy, in many ways the world capital of bicycle saddles. Selle Italia, which uh, now also owns the Selle San Marco brand, is celebrating 120 years of existence. And I'm here with the president, Giuseppe Bigolin. Uh, Signor Bigolin, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about the history of the company. Uh, wh- how and when was it founded?
5: It has been founded uh, 120 years ago, that means uh, 1897. 70 years later, has been uh, uh, placed in our area, in Rossano Veneto, uh, where exactly another 50 years ago uh, I started uh, uh, operating with uh, the CEL Italia brand. At the beginning, uh, I was with one uh, worker together with me, and we uh, only produced leather racing saddles with a really antique uh, instrument. And then uh, slowly, slowly, uh, we move, and we increase, we develop, uh, we have been able to develop uh, till to now. I can say, uh, fortunately, the technology and and then the technicity give us uh, the the way, much more important innovation we introduce on the saddles, especially for the racing saddles, is the uh, different thickness uh, in the area where where the people sit. Uh, we first introduce uh, wow. the gel on the on the saddles. Uh, first we introduce the shock absorber system. First we introduce uh, titanium rail, and then later. The uh, tubular frame of the saddles, and in uh, and, uh, uh, 1989 we first introduced uh, the flight sitter. We changed uh, we changed completely the image, not only the concept of
1: the seats. We're standing in what is effectively a small museum of saddles here at your headquarters, and uh, we're standing in front of the oldest saddler that you have here, I think, yeah. which is in 1910. Yeah. It's a collection of springs and, and leather. Yeah. It, it looks more like a sort of horse saddle than yeah. a bicycle saddle. But looking um, along the line from 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940, yeah. uh, 1950... It doesn't change that much. There's still leather, there's still springs, and it's not until sort of in, in the, I guess, the early 1950s, we see this saddle here, um, which looks much more familiar. It's, it's, it's a, a leather saddle with rivets around the edge of it. Um, wh- what do you know about that saddle? Presumably that would be the sort of saddle that uh, perhaps Fausto Coppi would have been uh, riding on.
5: Fausto copy was another model. was a model like this one. Oh, that's the 1955 with, with, with one. With the classic uh, racing uh, uh, saddles, which was with the tender, with a rivet in the, that uh, star- time, uh, steel. And uh, later, this one is something more industrial, with the springs.
1: OK, yeah. so, yes, the 1951 has sort yeah. of springs yeah, yeah, underneath, yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. I presume the, the big change... Was when you moved to nylon and plastic later on?
5: Unbelievable change because uh, I don't know if you remember, at that time, the racing leather saddles, uh, uh, you can see one part uh, uh, regular and the other part uh, uh, going down. That's because the part of the skin was not uh, uh, the, the best. And then, uh, of course, with with uh, introduction the introduction with the plastic material, I mean plastic, uh, and then nylon, then better, 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 with carbon inside, uh, unbelievable opportunity to create cells uh, for the first to the million, uh, all the same.
1: So they were easier to make, better to make, and, and lighter. Yeah. Did the riders like them at first? Uh, yes,
5: yes. Uh, w- we start and. Uh, uh, 1970, 70 with the first nylon saddles. Uh, one of the first was uh, Eddie Merckx, and then Felice Gimondi. Later, uh, with uh, with uh, uh, Marco Pantani. Before with Bernaino, uh, uh, I, I can say all the big champions uh, uh, in uh, racing bicycle. Uh, has been uh, uh, using our saddles. And it was a big experience for us uh, to increase uh, uh, the quality of of the saddles and the performance and the lightness, uh, everything that uh, uh, today people know.
1: Of course, one of the most famous saddles ever was the Selle Italia Turbo. Um, That really did sort of revolutionise saddle design, didn't it? That was, that was very popular for very long.
5: Yes, it was the first time, I, I think, uh, uh, not only for the design, because the design was not so special, but especially because of the new concept uh, we introduced. Uh, a new concept mean the shell, on the shell, in the different parts, uh, we created different thickness to give uh, more comfort. Uh, in the points where the, 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 the human was sitting. That's what the first concept. Uh, later, we uh, realized the, the, the uh, flight sitter where uh, has been really completed the revolution. People maybe think that there was only one aesthetic uh, question. No, we cut the, the part, the side of the saddles because it was one part, that was only producing a, a uncomfortable concept, uh, cutting this, this, this side of the shadows the shadows becomes uh, much more comfortable and on the same time uh, it generate another view completely different. And then now you see all the shadows all over the world,
1: they are uh, similar of this base model. Do you ever think that everyone looked at the flight saddle and thought, that's how we're going to make our saddles? And since then, virtually every saddle has been like that, hasn't it?
5: Now, for after, after this date, unfortunately, I, I, I don't take a, a, a patent. You know? And then later, it becomes everybody now 100%, 99.9%, you know, 100% of the existing saddles, they are realised in this way but uh, I I never received a
1: Christmas cake from my competitors. Giuseppe Bigolin, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome, thank you. And that's it from this podcast, apart from the quiz. Last time we asked who came second to Tom Pickcock in the Junior Cyclocross World Championships. The answer, of course, was another British rider, Dan Tullett, with fellow Brit Ben Turner in bronze. Mark Caffin got that one right. He wins a ruler T-shirt. The prize this time is all eight of Simon Warren's regional guides to great climbs in the UK, plus the 100 Climbs app to go with them. And the question is, how many times did Chris Boardman win the British National Hill Climb Championship? Go to the Ruler website, check out the page for this podcast. The full instructions are there. Good luck. Speak next time.